which uh, let me ask you all a question. From your perspective, what would what would be some of the most important qualities that a that a preacher could have, or a minister, or a church employee, or however you want to say that? What would you say? What would be some of the qualities that you would want to see in somebody like that? Integrity, Integrity sure. Patience. Patience. Ooh, that's a good one. I didn't think of that one. Why would we, why, not we, I don't work for the church. Whew, got off. Um, why would we want that in a, somebody, in, in, a, in a preacher, in a minister? Why would we want patience? That's a great point. Because you have members in your congregation coming to ask you questions and seek counsel. You need to be willing to listen to them and answer according to what that person is asking. Okay, good. That's a really good point. Y'all hear what she said? Because... Where else, you know, I, I mean, I, when you, the minute you said that, I had a thought of a guy that years ago that I was counseling with, and, and um, I was probably lacking, well, I was lacking patience with this guy, and I wanted to do something else with him, and the Lord convicted me of that to keep him and uh, keep him coming to counsel, and primarily because if you're, if a minister and I'm not talking about just somebody, you know, really pre- preaching the Word of God because we're all ministering the Word of God, right, in people's lives individually. Uh, but the reason I think patience is so important is because we don't give up on them because that's the only place they're, possibly the only place they're going to hear the gospel, right? So if we push them aside, then we have removed the presence of the gospel from their life. All right, what else? How about education? That would be one, wouldn't it? Good public speaking ability. Anything else? Knowledge. Yeah. What about boldness? Do you think boldness would be important? Why would boldness be important? Actually, I I think of Charlie when I think of boldness in preaching and teaching. Why? Have you all seen... He's not afraid to talk to people about the Lord, right? And it takes a spirit of boldness to do that, doesn't it? Um, you know, I'm really convicted myself now. I've developed a little um, booklet that I'm using with a group that I meet with on Thursday nights that teaches them how to have a quiet time. And then we talk about uh, the Great Commission at the end of each day. I've got this in there where it talks about the Great Commission you know, and Jesus has called us to be witnesses. And then there's the question there. Have you been a witness to somebody today? You know, well, how can I ask people to do that and not be doing that myself? Right? Or have you talked to... What about just talking to somebody about what God is doing in your life individually? Well, you know, all those things are, are essential components, I think. But I, what nobody has said that probably the most necessary ingredient in the life of a minister of Christ. What? Pardon? Humility. Humility? Certainly there. That, that's another really good one. Because what turns off people more than anything is a proud person, right? But there's still one other key element. It starts with an L and it's got an O and a V in the middle and it ends with an E. <laughs> <coughs> right? 
Love for the church, right? Love for the church itself. Now, what do we mean when we say the church itself? Of course, we're talking about the individuals and talking about the individuals worldwide. We're not talking about faith community church, although faith community church would be incorporated in with that, right? So love for the church. Nobody can really, truly serve God in the church without a motivation of love in them. And, I mean, think of the motivation of Jesus, that he loved the church so much that he gave his life for it, right? And Paul charged the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 28, quote, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, right? Which he purchased with his own blood. And then in Ephesians 5, 25, he said that husbands should love their wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for. When you think of love for the church, love for the body of Christ, what, what verse is your go-to? Anybody? If somebody said, explain to me Christian love, what, what would you say? Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 13? Pardon? All right, that's in 1 John, probably, yeah. What else? Ephesians 5? What about John 3.16, right? You know, for, for God so loved that... Break that down in your mind. For God so loved that he gave, right? Did I, I like to think of it like this. We have a need. We, didn't, we weren't aware that we had a need. We weren't asking for the need to be fulfilled, but God sacrificially fulfilled it in Christ without us even asking. Now, take that into a marriage context. Um, husbands, you know, think of, how can you love your wife that way? Don't wait for her to ask. You know, sacrificially give without her asking. Anytime I've ever posed that, by the way, in a marriage counseling situation, you know, and I ask the husband, what's one way you can give to your wife sacrificially a need that you know that she has that she's not asking for? And the guy will say something, and I'll look at the wife and say, is that true? Oh, yes. You know, so we do know, right? They, they, if they don't tell us, at least we can pick up on it. So anyway, um, love. And Paul had a deep love for the church, and, and he actually gave his life in service to it, didn't he? He frequently expressed it in his letters that he wrote that, that we have, and he loved the church because he loved Christ. And somebody, I was talking to a couple this week, um, this couple calls from time to time, they have a son that's um, not living a life that was pleasing to the Lord, and um, they call me on speakerphone, and, and, and they were talking about this particular guy, and I said, you know, the reason that guy does that is because of his love for the church, right? And, I mean, that's, if you, you know what it's like working with people, right? They don't always, uh, well, let me tell you, I just thought of this one. I had some guys that I had to um, file a police report on. And um, when things got settled down and, and the police came back, I called them back, 3 a.m., and um, they said, well, do you want us to arrest him? I said, you know, every fiber of me wants to, but then I'll just be dealing with him in eight weeks from now. Could you just go in there and rustle him up a little bit? 
and and the officer said, "Well, Mr. Brown, we'll do whatever you want us to do, you know." But um, but he he said, "I can tell you that usually doesn't turn out real well, you know, especially if they're intoxicated. You know, then they get mad." And and uh, the officer said, he said, "You know, I, I make a living at telling people to do things and they don't do them." I said, "You got the same job I do." <laughs> but anyway. Uh, you know, the, um, why, why do we do that? I can promise you it's nothing within me, right? It's, it's, it's the love for the church that God has placed in me. When you see people sacrificially giving of their lives to other people, it's because of the love of, of Christ implanted in us as believers for the church. And Paul uh, expressed that truth in 1 John four twenty one. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should also love his brother. And it was his love for Christ and his church that enabled Paul to endure the physical suffering that he went through. You know, none of us have done that, suffered physically for the church. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 11. But it also, this love also allowed Paul to, to, to bear the daily pressure of concern for all the churches that he was planning. You know, he didn't have just concern for one church. He had concern for every church. And um, because of that love, Paul endured um, defections, people falling away. He, he, he endured false teachers, and he, he endured personal abuse. In 2 Timothy, uh, he said that he could endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it, eternal glory. Endure all things for those other people, right? We tend to get, or at least I do, you know, I tend to get in my little bubble, you know, and don't impede on my space. Have Has anybody traveled in any uh, South American or Latin American countries? You know, Americans, you know, we got this, you know, don't come in here. This is my space. In Mexico, and I know in Peru as well, they come right up on you. You know, they're here, you know, and that's hard for us Americans, right? And, but God created us that way. And I knew an evangelist in Atlanta that um, he talked real, real light like this because it drew you in. If you wanted to hear what he was saying, you had to come up here. And that was very intentional on his part. Uh, to draw people in. But <clears throat> Paul's love for the church caused him to write the letter that we've been looking at in Colossae. And, and he wanted them to know of the great struggle that he'd had on their behalf in their sister church in, in Laodicea, Laodicea, as we've been looking at. So even though they had never personally seen his face, he struggled for them. So let's leave, we're going to move into chapter 2 today and read verses 1 through 5. Colossians 2, 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
So here Paul states his specific con- concern for that church individually. And, and up to this point, um, this is these five verses, I think, are the most personal part of the letter that he's written so far that we've looked at. And expressing his concern, he now is going to, to model for us um, how our hearts themselves ought to feel for the church, for our church, for that church across the street, for the two that are meeting down the road over there. And I think at one time, I can't remember what it is, but if you go from downtown Woodstock to the other end of Arnold Mill, I think there's at least, at least 11 churches. All right, what's that, five miles, maybe eight, 11 churches, right? So, I mean, Church Alley, right? And then, I mean, we're, what, a quarter mile off of it, and there's one here and one across the street. So we're not talking about just our church, right? We're talking about a love for all of the churches. So look at Paul's intensity uh, of his concern in verse 1. I want you, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. So, again, we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we met of uh, this word struggle. It's, it's the Greek word that we get the English word agony from. Paul says, I, I'm agonizing for you. And, and it was a word that was originally derived uh, for the Greeks for their Olympic Games. It was a word that was used for wrestling and foot races. Um, you know, have, did anybody here wrestle in high school or college? You know, a couple. That, that's probably the most exerting sporting event that there is. But, you know, because, I mean, the rest of them, there's a break here or there, you know. But with the wrestling, you take a millisecond of a break and you're on your back and somebody's pounding three, um, three taps and you're out, right? And then the and same thing about a foot race, right? So the, the, Paul is, he's saying that he's struggling, he's agonizing like a wrestling match or a foot race. The Boston Marathon was this week. Um, did y'all see the time of the guy that won that? Um, that's what, 26 miles, right? Two hours and nine minutes. Now, what does that break down miles per hour, average? You know, pardon? 440, yeah. That's insane is it not over that period of time and and actually there was an american running with the guy until the two mile to go mark and so somehow the guys run 24 miles and got somebody running with him and he's like all right time to kick it in another gear right i mean what how insane is that and he pulls ahead, you know, at, with two miles to go, had something left. I don't get that. But that's what he's talking about here. Using that, think of that kind of strength, that kind of energy for the church. And Paul had been agonizing, fighting for the Colossians with everything that he had. And what makes this really remarkable is that he'd never even seen them, right? I mean, have you ever seen the people in that church over there other than pulling out and seeing them in the yard or whatever? Or the church down here. Paul had never seen these folks. Uh, he, he had seen Epaphras, who's there with him, and Philemon, uh, and maybe he saw somebody when he was in Ephesus. They said, yeah, that guy's part of the church over there in Colossae, but he'd never seen them collectively as a whole group. He, he had no idea what they looked like. He, he knew nothing of their personalities yet. 
he agonized for them. And uh, um, why strain over the people or over a people that you'd never seen? And I, I think the Bible clearly tells us that in Acts 9 that Paul was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's why he agonized. God chose him to do that. His old stony heart, as we know, reading his testimony in Acts, had been replaced with a soft heart, with a genuine care for people. And and he genuinely cared for the, the Gentiles. Have you ever heard of a guy named William Carey? you all ever heard of William Carey? You know, William Carey is is known as the father of modern missions. And I, uh, our church library has his biography, a new edition of a William Carey uh, biography that's really, really good. But Carey lived uh, in the, born in the mid-1700s, died in 1834. But he translated, now tell me, he, was, he went to India. Tell me if you think he agonized, struggled for the church in India. Carey translated the Bible into seven languages. Is that an easy task? You know, I don't think so, right? And um, I think Paul and William Carey, they both had that kind of a heart. Carey, prior to becoming a missionary, was a shoemaker, and he made a globe out of leather and had the whole world on there, had a world map on a globe made out of leather for the express purpose of praying for the world. And... Um, I, I I bought a book two weeks ago when I was preparing for this lesson because I used to have this book and I was talking to a kid about it yesterday. I didn't bring it uh, because I'm going to send it back. I hate that, but um, it, 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 I thought it was a good tool and it, and I suppose it is if you can wade through it. But there's a, it's called Operation World and it's a prayer guide for the world. But reading just the intro of the new edition the one it's updated every 10 years and mine was old so i wanted to get a new one reading the intro and just flipping to a couple countries it's just it's just bad <laughs> let's just put it that way the the doctrinal things that it's talking about are just bad so don't do that one here's a great way to be like william carey though and to be able to pray for the world is just get a map right and and pick a country and just start praying for that country and you can do a different country every day i i used to know a guy that um when his kids were young he got a world map and he had it cut in the shape of his um actually he was the founding pastor of our church craig tuck and he had he had that map like under their on top of their kitchen table and then he got a piece of glass and put it over there so and so they their family when his kids were young they would sit around the dinner table and after dinner, when they would clear the dishes, they had the map there, and they would pick a different country each night to pray for. That's a way that, that we can pray for the country. We need to be, I mean, for the world, we need to be doing that. But for Paul, there was even more because he and the Colossians shared the, the same relationship with Christ. He knew that. And he was their spiritual father because he had won Epaphras to Christ, and then he went back and planted that that church there. Can you think of... Um, was anybody here led to Christ by an individual, you know, not in a church setting, but, you know, somebody shared the gospel with you and you came to know the Lord through that? All right. That person, is that person still alive? All right. 
Oh, is that actually okay? <laughs> Hopefully she is. <laughs> right? uh, so, um, you know, that, that, that's the kind of thing, Paul. So I'm sure during that time more than, than ever, she was really praying for you, right? Agonizing, struggling for you. The guy that led me to the Lord is, is dead now, but, you know, he's, I'm, I'm sure there, you know, there'll be, think of now with Ashley's witness to you, your witness to others, you've gone on mission trips, shared the gospel there. You know, I mean, think of how that spreads like that. You know, when you were going on your trips overseas, were you struggling in prayer, agonizing for those, for the church, right? Because that's then they're sharing the gospel and they're sharing the gospel. So, you know, when Ashley is in heaven one day, somebody that she hadn't doesn't have a clue who it is going to come up and say, hey, you know, you shared the gospel with so-and-so and so-and-so, and so-and-so. you know, spiritual grandchildren, if you will. And, and Paul understood that, and that's why he poured his heart out in prayer for the churches. And all these elements contributed to a dynamic struggle, and maybe even his persecution fell into that, right? Think of Paul's life. You know, everywhere this guy went, there was conflict. There was riots in Ephesus. He was beat up in Philippi. He was stoned in Lystra. He was shipwrecked at the sea. Every time he turned around, he had some kind of danger going on, right? Even had a snake hanging on his finger at one point, right? But Paul, he, he bared his heart. Finally, you know, I would have been griping and complaining long before this, but he finally bared his heart in Second Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired life itself. You know, this time I actually even thought I was going to die. That's what he said. That, that word burden there is, uh, the, describes a, a draft animal. You know, an animal that's, that's pulling a heavy load and has fallen in the ditch. And, you know, if an animal falls in the ditch and, I mean, it can't get up. If it's got the cart hooked to it, it's just done. It's just there sideways until somebody comes and rescues it. Or perhaps it, you know, dies like that. You know, and, and I'm sure that Paul many times felt like he was going to die like that. You know, he, he felt that he was going to die when he was working with the churches in Asia. And I just thought of a, our friends, Daniel knows, and you guys will get to meet the Shaws will be here sometime this year. And um, they were going on a trip two years ago, maybe three, into the villages, and they had... Uh, Brad sold one of his mules because he couldn't grow enough alfalfa to feed both of them. So he sold one of them, but they needed two mules for this trip they were going on. So he rented one. And um, they came around the corner on the, one of these mountain passes, you know, walking with the mules with all their stuff. They, you know, they packed those things. And one of them got spooked in this Peruvian the two guys with Santiago and Freddie were with him, and they're stout guys, but they're little guys. And the mule got spooked, and it went backwards while it went off the cliff. So they're holding the thing by the range, you know, and it's screaming, as you can imagine, and they're scooching closer and closer to the edge, you know, and Brad's screaming, let it go, let it go, and and they let it go. I mean... That's that's agonizing, right? That's how Paul was 
Brad jokingly says, I didn't buy the mule insurance, and the guy really raked me <laughs> over the coals when we got back. But, but, uh, it was a rental when it went over. Yeah. <laughs> and it landed on its feet, so the carton on its back kind of busted open, but nothing was broken, so they were able to, they had to go all the way back down, though, you know. I mean, think of what we would do. You know, I ah, forget it. I'm going home. But, you know, they agonize over this. And this that's thats what Paul was like at this point. I mean, even in uh, 1 Thessalonians, he says it was a struggle. There's that same word. To work night and day so as not to be a burden on you in presenting the gospel. And then he agonized um, also... For, for his converts in 2 Corinthians 11, it says, Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? You know, he agonized over his converts. He, have you ever had somebody that you were working with, an individual that you just, you were so burdened, so agonized that you couldn't sleep? You know, probably a child, maybe for those of us that have got adult children, you know, we, we go through those times. But what about somebody that you're working the gospel, you know, sharing the gospel? You've been witnessing to this person, you know, has anybody, have you ever lost sleep in agonizing thoughts and prayers, wrestling in prayer all night long for somebody? Um, you know, that, that's a real fight. In, in uh, chapter 4, he, he told how faithful Epaphras was. In verse 12, he said, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That's the same word. He struggled for the people in prayer. And if you remember in Ephesians 6, where Paul describes how to put on the full armor of God, so we'll be ready to battle. He concludes in verse 18 there by telling a fully clothed warrior, Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's where the, the greatness of Paul's struggle for the Colossians was. He was in jail, but he was agonizing in prayer over a people that he had never even met. met. You know, he had a great heart, didn't he? That's the kind of heart we're supposed to have for other churches, for other believers. And large, you know, large hearts like that always know the agony. Sleepless nights, struggling in prayer. And there's a great benefit to having a big heart like that because big hearts... If you know somebody like that, or if you yourself have experienced that, big hearts also know the most joy in this Christian life because they're more in tune with God through that agonizing prayer. Um, And, you know, we're all called to that, whether we're missionaries or not. A heart that is willing to agonize not only over our own little circle, Faith Community Church, but the church universal. Um, and when you have a heart like that, you won't just pray for your church. You'll pray for all of them, all of them in the city and all of them in the world. Now, do you have a hard time with that? I do, you know, because I want everybody to have my doctrine. I want everybody to think the way I think, right? So do you have a hard time praying for another church that you know um, maybe doesn't do it the way you do it? 
You know, how do you overcome that? You know, you become that animal that's stuck in the ditch and you just go into agonize. Just do Just pray for him and God will begin to soften your heart with that, I think. And that's what Paul tells us happens next in verses 2 and 3. He wants, he says that their hearts may be, he does all of this, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the basic meaning there of the word encourage is, is to call alongside. Uh, it can be uh, done for many purposes. Uh, that word has a wide range of meaning. I'm not gonna, I can't say it in Greek, but... It, to call alongside, it could, it could include uh, the idea of appealing to somebody, comforting somebody, encouraging somebody, exhorting somebody. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another, right? We are to encourage one another, to be in each other's lives. You've heard it said as many times as I have, I'm sure, you know, God didn't create us to live alone. We were created to live in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other. We need community. What's the first thing we do when we start a life of sin, though? You know, I can tell you in, in the life of addictions, we start isolating. Yeah. You know, you find somebody that's isolating, and you can guarantee that there's something going wrong with them. That's why, you know, the, um, the uh, admonition to... To us in in Matthew 18, um, to go and, um, you know, if you see your brother in sin, you go to him, right? If you know somebody that's starting to isolate, I can guarantee you something's going wrong in their life. And and you need to go and and encourage them, go alongside them. And that Paul couldn't do that because he was in jail, so he was agonizing in prayer over them that they would be able to to go and do that. And in this context, I think the best from a commentator I read on this said that word um, encourage could really best be translated strengthen because the Colossians were plagued by false teachers. They needed strengthening, right? They needed strengthening. And uh, commentator William Barclay on that word from the classic Greek uh, he he wrote this. Uh, he shows us a parallel of that word used in classic Greek literature. He says, quote, There was a Greek regiment which had lost heart and was utterly dejected. The general sent a leader to talk to it to such purpose, listen to this, that courage was reborn and a body of dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. That is what this word means here. It is Paul's prayer that the church may be filled with the courage which can cope with any situation. So Paul's agonizing with them for them that their hearts would be encouraged and knit together in love. And, um, you know, for them to reach, he he wanted them to be able to reach the, the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which he tells us, is Christ. And, you know, perceptive Christians, and I'm sure you've seen this in your life, always know that the key to spiritual well-being is an increased knowledge and focus on Christ. 
Think in your own life if you're in a, in a or have been in a dry spell, and, and you now you're you're back in the Word. You know, every day you're really encouraged with what you're reading, and and you now you just have an increased knowledge, an increased focus on Christ, right? I think I mentioned a book to you all a couple of weeks ago that Darby mentioned to me that uh, Chris Brackett mentioned to him, you know, really neat how it's going down, that just, I mean, it's just been blowing me with, away. It's called Rejoicing in Jesus, I think is the name of it. Uh, Michael Reeves is the author. And I mean, it is so rich on just focusing on Christ. Uh, really, really good. Highly recommend it. Um, and and C.S. Lewis, of course, understood this. And a month before he died, he wrote this letter to a little girl. This is a little lengthy, but I want you to hear this. He, C.S. Lewis, knew that that the key to spiritual well-being is an increased knowledge and focus upon Christ. And he wrote to this little girl, "Dear Ruth, many thanks for your kind letter." And it was very good of you to write and tell me that you like my books. And what a very good letter you write for your age. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. What you think of Christ, your conception of him is everything. Notice he didn't say what you feel, right? What you think of Christ, your conception of him is everything. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is eternal, without beginning, without end, that he always was continuing, if you believe that he is creator of everything, every cosmic speck across trillions of light years of trackless space, the creator of the textures and shapes and the colors which daily dazzle your eyes. Can you imagine writing to a little girl like this? (laughs) If you believe that he is the sustainer of all creation, the force which is presently holding the atoms of your body, your, your town, this universe together, and that without him, all would dissolve. If you believe that he is the mystery, the incarnate reconciler, who will one day reconcile the universe and redeem humanity to himself, if you believe that he is the lover of your soul, who loves you with a love bounded only by his infinitude, then, despite the fact that life will be full of trouble, Nothing much will go wrong. Your vision of Christ will quicken and shape your life. What you believe about Christ makes all the difference in the world now and in eternity, end quote. Right? Isn't that awesome? You know, to think about, get your mind wrapped around him. And then, even in this world of trouble, we, we can walk through it. So how does this knowledge of Christ come? I think what Paul's getting at there, and kind of bringing this to a point of what we're talking about, is through brotherly love in the church. That's why in verse 2 he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, this depth of understanding is facilitated when believers' hearts are bound together in love. Right? This means that mere intellectual comprehension of the mystery of Christ won't, won't, won't bring full understanding of the mystery. For understanding also comes through the love that we have for one another. Now you may say, you know, Stuart Scott's got a a thing uh, in the back of one of his books called 
uh, the one and others, he calls it, loving one another. I actually kind of blew those up a little bit and had them laminated on really uh, heavy um, plastic laminate, you know, so it's really firm. And and I used to have those tacked up at the mission house, you know, of one anothering. There's 31 of them I think he has, you know, so there's one for every day that we can practice this. And, you know, when we're loved by other believers, we're, we're actually experiencing Christ through them. And then our knowledge of Christ is then enhanced, right? So if we love, then he tells us there that we have the riches of full assurance of understanding. And isn't that what we're after? This is the important message for an alive Christianity, that no intellectual process is going to lead somebody to the full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it's accompanied by a love for him and for other Christians. And that's what knits it all together. You know, you've seen ladies that knit and how that, those, that ball of stuff gets knit. And then now you got this thing. You know, that's what we're talking about here. I, I uh, um, I, I knew a guy years ago, I don't know where he, I lost contact with him, but he was taking some seminary classes and he was fully convinced in his mind that the professor did not know God, did not know Christ as his Savior, yet it was a seminary professor because there was no love. The guy was stone cold, stoic, no love for the church or for God's people, you know, and we we can't pursue knowledge of God in willful, unloving isolation. Like I said, we are created to be in community with each other. And historically, some people have tried that, but they've they've suffered. And then there's a uh, incomplete, distorted understanding of the church. Luther and Calvin and Wesley, some some great saints of old, they were great sacrificial lovers of the body of Christ. Right, the deepest knowledge of the mystery of Christ comes from the head and the heart. I'm sure you've heard the preachers talk about, yeah, that guy's going to miss heaven by 12 inches. You know, the difference between here and here if you take a ruler, or if you got a long neck, maybe it's more. Right, but you get the point. There's no heart change, no love for people, and um, and Paul then he goes on in. Verse 3, and at the end of verse 2, and he states his desire is once they've got this understanding of God, that they may know of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that was a direct blow to the Gnostics. You know, they claimed to have the, the way to wisdom and knowledge. And Paul said that there's no other way to know that except through Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ alone. Can't get it outside of that. No matter how hard you try, there can be no true knowledge of God without Christ. And really, I mean, that's the way it should be, right? I mean, he's the creator, as we saw in chapter 1. And and Paul is, I mean, he is concerned about their minds. That's why he spent so much time and depth in chapter 1 going through it. But look on into verses 4 and 5 there. He was motivated by all this because he was concerned that they were being led astray. In verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
And, and the Gnostics, they were clever in their arguing, and they could lead them astray really easy. But if their hearts were knit together in brotherly love with one another, you know, if your heart is, is knit together in love with another believer, you're not going to allow that person to be taken uh, to go astray, to be called offside, or however you want to say that, right? Um, but today, I think there's um, subtleties which Paul didn't have to deal with that we need to have our antennas up about. What would you think some of those are? The Internet. The Internet. All right. How could people be led astray spiritually, doctrinally, from God through the Internet? Yeah, yeah. Martin and Denio showed us uh, a couple of weeks ago at our small group on a Friday night um, a uh, video. Y'all were there. Did you see that that night? They, he showed us a video in Africa, current, current, of this pastor building full of people, hundreds, hundreds of people. Him telling them that that grass outside is manna from God. Go eat your spiritual food. The whole place got up and they're all out there like cows grazing on the grass. How in the world does that happen, right? That's, you know, Mark. that breaks Mark's heart. Why do you think he's here being trained? Because he has a love for the church there. He has a love for the church here because he... Not like he's not busy, you know, and he teaches a small group on top of that, right? So that's what Paul is talking about here, you know, of having this. So you don't get drawn away by plausible arguments. Um, I mean, the prosperity gospel is one. The easy believism gospel is one. Psychology is one. Um, You know, and then the other part of what he's saying here of his motivation is seen in verse 5. And he actually comes full circle now where he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So here we are. You know, he's come all the way around. The Spirit of God that united Paul and the people in Colossae in the church there was the same. They all lived in Christ. So they're one body. And that's why you can have a heart for a church on the other side of the world or on the other side of the street. Or down in downtown or up in the mountains or wherever, right? That's what we're called to do, is to have this kind of love for other believers. So, any final thoughts? It's hot in here, isn't it? All right, well, you're just...